going to start with a statement from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 707. And this is a familiar statement to us, but it's certainly pertinent to the time in which we are living in now. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 707. God will arouse his people if other means fail. Heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. This light should lead us to a diligent study of the Scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. So I have no difficulty taking um, this opportunity to use the Bible to give a critical examination to the position we hold on the issue of the Godhead. But what we see here is that before the Lord comes back, God is going to allow heresy to come into the church because we as a people have been sleeping. Now, some of you may say, you know, what's the big deal about heresy? If someone has a different view on who God is than what I do, um, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, you may have noticed that those who agitate, whether it's the Trinity Godhead issue or any other issue that we're going to talk about this week, it tends to become an all-consuming idea that the whole church needs to accept. And if you don't accept this idea, you're going to be lost. You won't receive the latter rain. You won't receive the seal of God and all of those kinds of things. And so they turn it into a testing thing even. But heresy is not just a minor thing. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles with you, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Now, we know Galatians chapter 5 as the chapter in which the fruits of the Spirit are defined, which we like to talk about. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. But before that, we have the works of the flesh, starting in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions. And notice the last item in verse 20. What's mentioned there? Heresies. And then Paul goes on to say, he lists a number of other things. Then he says, which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So those who are advocating heresy are controlled by the flesh, not by the spirit. Those who advocate for false doctrine and false teaching in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that's that which goes against the Word of God, are actually being motivated by the flesh, even though they don't realize it. Now, you may have seen sometimes debates or dialogues on social media, such as Facebook, where people will debate these things. And I certainly am not saying that those who hold to the position that the church teaches always use a Christ-like method, but I can tell you the few times I have entered into dialogue with those who promote anti-Trinitarian teaching, I mean, I've been labeled a Jesuit and under the control of Catholics and all sorts of things um, just for posting a Bible verse without even making any commentary on it. So it's, um, 
not always been a good spirit that I've been exposed to from this movement. So heresies are defined as a work of the flesh. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when it comes to truth versus error, those who promote error make plain statements seem complicated. And this is the pattern that I have always noticed with those who promote heresy or fanaticism, and that is this. They'll have 50 Ellen White statements and 50 or 100 Bible verses, and they go through all of them, and by the time you come to the end, you're just as confused as you were um, at the beginning of the presentation, and then it's urged upon you that you must accept this teaching or you're not going to be saved. And the Bible truth is very clear and plain. It's not hard to figure out. So if you're walking out confused, there's probably a reason. Now, I'm just going to hit briefly some of the fundamental beliefs that address the Godhead, the Trinity. And this is fundamental belief number two, which says there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. God is immortal, all-powerful, all-knowing, above all, and ever-present. He is infinite and beyond human comprehension, yet known through his self-revelation. God, who is love, is forever worthy of worship, adoration, and service by the whole creation. And then there's a number of Bible verses that you can look up to validate that. You see Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So those are just some verses that are out there. Now when we come to fundamental belief number four, with respect to the Father, it says, God, the eternal Father, is the creator, source, sustainer, and sovereign of all creation. He is just and holy, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The qualities and powers exhibited in the Son and the Holy Spirit are also those of the Father. There's more Bible verses that you can look up. And then fundamental belief number four, I have two slides for this. It says, God, the eternal Son, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Through him all things were created. The character of God is revealed. The salvation of humanity is accomplished and the world is judged. Forever truly God, he became also truly human, Jesus the Christ. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived and experienced temptation as a human being, but perfectly exemplified the righteousness and love of God. His miracles, he manifested God's power and was attested as God's promised Messiah. He suffered and died voluntarily on the cross for our sins and in our place was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven to minister in the heavenly sanctuary in our behalf. He will come again in glory for the final deliverance of his people and the restoration of all things. So that's the Seventh-day Adventist fundamental beliefs. This was voted by the General Conference in session in 1980 at the Dallas, Texas General Conference. 1980. Now, anti-Trinitarians are saying that these statements are wrong, that they are unbiblical, and some are even saying that they constitute the omega of apostasy. So that is a bit of a problem. And what I'm going to do now, though, is rather than saying in my words what anti-Trinitarians are saying, I'm going to read to you um, what anti-Trinitarians actually say. Because one thing I don't want to do is to build up a straw man and tear it down 
and teach something that even they would say isn't something they believe. So this is what they, this is, and, and one other thing I should also say is that there are some variations within this anti-Trinitarian camp, but there are some commonalities. So here's some of the things that they say. So this is an anti-Trinitarian, I'm just quoting him now. It's, he says, and again, this is not what I believe, this is what they say. They say, Jesus is referred to as God in Hebrews 1.8 and John 1.1. Also, all things were created by him, John 1.3. This absolutely establishes his divinity and his preexistence, but the terms God and Son of God establishes the relationship between two beings. So you'll notice that they'll say, see, he is divine. It establishes his divinity, but they don't want to say, yes, he is God. He's referred to you as God, but they don't want to come right out and say that. Then they go on to say the best way to understand the usage of the term God is by the name Adam. When taken in the strictest sense, Adam is the name of a single individual. The term Adam, man, can also refer to mankind, a race of beings, or to both Adam and Eve. Scripture that is in, says in the image of God, um, so it is the Father speaking to the Son. And they go on and quote some Bible verses Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Many read into Genesis 1, 26 and 27, a trinity, but there is only one being in all the scripture that is in the image of God. They say that's Christ in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So they say it's the Father speaking to the Son. And they say that Ellen White, and again, this is what they say, not what I believe. They say that Ellen White backs this interpretation in early writings 145, where she says, when God said to his son, let us make man in our image, Satan was jealous of Jesus. What is significant, they say, is that there were not three beings that were created, but only two beings. We believe that this is because God was illustrating in the creation of man the relationship between the father and the son. Adam was first, and then Eve was brought forth from his substance, or rib, in the same way the father is God, and that he was first. So they're acknowledging that there's a time that Jesus was not, and then they go on to say the Son is not God in the strictest sense of personality, but is God in substance and nature, even though his personality had a beginning in eternity. Jesus is God in nature, so he's divine, but God is a reference primarily to the Father. So that's in their words what they're saying about Jesus, that he is um, a divine being, um, he's God in substance and nature, but not in personality. There is a, a statement where Ellen White does say that something similar to that, but again, there's plenty of other statements that we're going to look at that establish that Christ is God. And here's what ends up happening. And I'm going to show you a video next if the, if the sound works. If you say that the Father, and of course they quote John 17, 3, that the Father is the one true God, and Jesus is the Son of God, what you are doing here is that you are placing Jesus as lower than the Father because he is not in personality God. He's the Son of God, and God is the Father. Jesus is the Son, and so Jesus is less than the Father. Now, I'm going to play a, a video here we'll see if the sound works, of two prominent teachers um, who promote the idea that the Father is, is God and Jesus is the Son of God. And you see how far the teaching takes you when you start to say that Jesus is less than the Father. So that, that's really all you need to see there, but that's really a shocking assertion that these teachers are making 
that worshiping Jesus as God is idolatry. Um, you know, Philippians 2 says that a day is going to come that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a lot of problems with where they're going. And, you know, just to even mention what they were talking about in the video, I mean, Scripture says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not just the Father on the throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's a lot of things that they misconstrue from Scripture. But here's some, just to summarize some of the things that they teach. They teach that the Father is the one true God. They call themselves the one true God movement based on John 17, 3, where Jesus says to the Father that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Um, so they teach that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God. He's a divine being who is the Son of God, but not God. They say that Jesus was begotten or brought forth from the bosom of the Father in the distant past. And they say that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct being. Now, there is a little bit of a variation among that camp. Some believe that the Holy Spirit is their Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of the Father and the Son combined. Others teach that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But they all agree that the Holy Spirit is not um, a distinct being. Um, they say that the current Seventh-day Adventist teaching is the omega of apostasy and that you cannot experience righteousness by faith or receive the latter rain unless you see this truth, or at least some of them are teaching this, including um, the people that you saw in the video. They say that worshiping Jesus or the Holy Spirit as God is a violation of the first commandment. You heard it on the video where it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they say that Seventh-day Adventists are worshiping a false god. So when you say, what's the big deal? Well, this is why it's a problem, because then those who believe these teachings want to come to your church and tell you that you've been worshiping a false god and that you're going to be lost unless you accept what they're teaching. And you may say, but didn't the pioneers believe this? And the answer is not really. They did not say or go to the extremes that the current group of anti-Trinitarians are going. Now, we are going to see what some of the pioneers said, but it's not to the extent of the current group. Um, they did not say it was the omega of apostasy and that you would be lost, things of that nature. So just to define some terms here, um, so Arianism, um, based on a, a teacher from the early first centuries named Arius, he, they, he taught that there was a time in the past that Jesus was not, that he did not exist. Then semi-Arianism came along and taught that Jesus proceeded from the substance or body of the Father and was begotten and as a literal son. So they say, in a sense, he always existed because he was part of the substance of the Father through eternity, but then he eventually came forth from the Father. And so he's a literal son, and they say they take the Bible literally as it reads. And again, they're using human constructs because I'm not trying to be disrespectful respectful, but if Jesus is the literal son of the literal father, then who's the mother? I mean, because now we're putting human constructs on, on, on God. So semi-Arianism thus teaches that the substance of Jesus always existed in the substance of the father. Now I'm going to quote to you from um, a second generation pioneer, E.J. Wagner of 1888 fame, of course, and this is what he teaches in his book, Christ and His Righteousness. 
and I'm quoting him. This is what he says. The scriptures declare that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is begotten, not created. So if you hear someone say, oh, we don't believe that Jesus is a created being, that's semantics. Um, because they still think there's a good chance they'll believe that he was begotten. So if someone tries to assure you, I don't think Jesus was created, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not anti-Trinitarian. They're just using terms to try to make it sound more acceptable. So he goes on to say, as to when he was begotten, it is not for us to inquire, nor could our minds grasp it if we were told. And now he starts quoting Micah 5.2. The prophet Micah tells us all that we can know about it in these words, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, among, or though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of eternity. Now the phrase goings forth is key for anti-Trinitarians. We're going to see why. And then he goes on to say, there was a time when Christ proceeded forth and came from God from the bosom of the Father, but that time was so far back in the days of eternity that to finite comprehension it is practically without beginning. But the point is that Christ is a begotten Son and not a created subject. He has by inheritance a more excellent name than angels. He is a son over his own house. And since he is the only begotten Son of God, he is of the very substance and nature of God and possesses by birth all the attributes of God. For the Father was pleased that the Son should be the express image of his person and brightness of his glory and filled with all the fullness of the Godhead. So he has life in himself. He possesses immortality in his own right and can confer immortality upon others. And that's from pages 21 and 22 of Wagner's book, Christ and His Righteousness. Now, There you can clearly see that Wagner was taking what we would call a semi-Aryan position. He taught that Christ proceeded from the substance of the Father. And that's what um, anti-Trinitarians today believe about Christ's divine nature. This is what they're saying from Micah 5.2, where it talks about the goings forth have been from old, from the days of eternity. Um, This is the key phrase that they use. It's from the Hebrew word motza'ah. The only other place that this phrase is found in Scripture is in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 27. And in 2 Kings 10, 27, the phrase is used to describe a, a draft house or a bath or toilet house set off from a larger house. So they say, see, that shows in Micah 5, 2, that Christ was set apart or begotten from the Father, um, just as a bathhouse is set apart from a regular house. Um, Honestly, I'd need a lot more to be convinced of such an argument, but that's the argument they're using. Um, And we're going to see why that breaks down when we show what that really means as we go through this. Then they go on to Proverbs 8 for the beginning of Christ. And in Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 30, Solomon is talking about wisdom personified. But we do understand from 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And Ellen White clearly shows in Signs of the Times, August 29, 1900, that Proverbs 8 is referring to Christ. So for those who try to say, oh, it's not Christ, it's wisdom, that's not a good argument because Ellen White is referring to Proverbs 8 as Christ. But there's some clear explanations as to how to understand this passage biblically. But here's what they'll say. Proverbs 8, 23, um, speaking of Christ, it says, I was set up from everlasting. So they say, see, he had a beginning from everlasting. 
Proverbs 8, 24, it says, I was brought forth. Proverbs 8, 25, it says, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I brought forth. And then Proverbs 8, 30, then I was by him as one brought up with him. So they say, see, he was brought up with the father like a son. Well, let's look at what these passages actually mean, because Micah 5, 2 and Proverbs 8, 22 to 30 are some of the key Bible verses that they use to try to show that Christ had a beginning in eternity. Well, in Micah 5, verse 2, this phrase, goings forth, is the phrase motza'ah in the feminine form of Hebrew, but motza'ah is the masculine form of the same word, and this is used 27 times in the Old Testament. Two times it is used to describe a king going about his business. 2 Samuel 3.25, where a representative of King David is doing his business. And in Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, we see the Lord going forth as the morning in preparation to pour out the early and the latter rain. So it would make a lot more sense in Micah 5, verse 2, that when it says his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, that it would make sense that this would be describing a king going about his business rather than saying that Christ proceeded from the substance of the Father. There's no reason to believe that based on that passage of Scripture. Now, Ellen White uses Micah 5 2 to define the everlasting divine nature of Christ. This is Signs of the Times, August 29, 1900. And by the way, I feel like I only need two or three Ellen White statements to settle this issue. I don't need a hundred. I just need one or two statements and it settles the case. It's not complicated at all. It really is not. Notice this statement. This is, um, and Ellen White is quoting, she's using this as a lead-in to her explanation of Micah 5 too. Before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the pre-existent. Now, the anti-Trinitarians are okay with him being pre-existent. He is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. Now, honestly, that statement settles it right there. I don't need your hundred other statements at that point. He's self-existent because God is self-existent. If he's self-existent, that means he didn't come out of the substance of the Father. And if, you're, if you try to get around the statement, there's really no way around it. Because if he really did come from the substance of the Father, she would have said he's the pre-existent, self-existent son who came out of the substance of the Father. But she doesn't say that. She simply says he is the pre-existent, self-existent son of, God, son of God, and she goes on to then quote Micah 5, 2 to make her point that his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, meaning that from everlasting means forever. Now, I've dialogued with those who believe in anti-Trinitarian teachings, and they say if he didn't have a beginning, it should have said through everlasting instead of from everlasting. And my response to that is if you say from everlasting to everlasting, then that would mean he has a beginning point and an ending point. So he has a starting point from everlasting, and he has an ending point at the end of everlasting, and there is no such thing. That doesn't even make sense. From everlasting means that there's no beginning point from that point that way. To everlasting means there's no ending point that way. But if you say from everlasting is a beginning point, then by definition you would have an ending point to everlasting. That doesn't even make sense just using basic English. So he's pre-existent and he's self-existent. Honestly, that statement right there should settle the issue of the divine nature of Christ. But we'll keep going. I'm happy to show some more things. 
Proverbs 8, Jesus' wisdom personified, but does this passage teach that he had a beginning and was brought forth? Now notice Ellen White, Signs of the Times, she also addresses Proverbs 8 in addition to Micah 5.2. So just read Signs of the Times, August 29, 1900, and she starts to quote about this passage, and we don't necessarily need to read all of it, but she says, through Solomon, Christ declared, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting. And you can keep going on down. You can read it in Proverbs 8. She's simply quoting Proverbs 8. And then in the very next paragraph, notice this. In speaking of his preexistence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. He assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God, he to whose voice the Jews were then listening had been with God as one brought up with him. Now listen, the anti-Trinitarians are familiar with this statement, and they say, yeah, there never was a time for two reasons. One, that from the moment Christ came forth, he's always been with the Father, and then he was even in the substance of the Father before that, so there's never been a time that they haven't been in close fellowship. But that's not what she's saying here. If Ellen White wanted us to understand that from the time he was brought forth, there never was a time, she would have said that. What, what never means is never. Okay? Never means never. Not from when the time he came forth. That means that the Father and the Son have always been. Because I just showed you a statement where it says that Jesus is not only pre-existent, he is self-existent. And if he's self-existent, that means that he always has been. He wasn't relying on the substance of the Father to be brought forth. And because he always has been, he, there never has been a time that he's not been in close fellowship with the eternal God. So again, that, that's very clear. Now, what does the Bible say? I've just shown you a few Bible verses. We'll come back to a few Ellen White statements. But what does the Bible say about Christ? Notice 1 Timothy 3.16, a very familiar passage. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Who was manifest in the flesh? God. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And then John 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God was with God, because the Son of God is God, and He was with the Father who also is God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then we see in John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh, that's God made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Jesus is not less than the Father. They are one. John 14, verse 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus could not be the perfect representation of his Father if he was not equal with him. Think about that. If Jesus is not God, he could not be the perfect representation of him. And then notice what the Father says of Jesus in Hebrews 1 verse 8. The Father says to Jesus, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You saw in the video that they said that only the Father sat on the throne, but here the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Jesus has a throne too. He's not less than the Father, he's equal to him. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the promise to those of us in the Laodicean church, those who overcome as Christ overcame, will sit with him on his throne, even as he also overcame and is set down with his Father in his throne.
Then Hebrews 7, 3, you know, Hebrews 7 speaks of this Melchizedek priesthood, and it's a comparison um, or analogy to the priestly ministry of Christ. And notice what it says of Melchizedek. It says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, Christ had a beginning and an ending in his humanity. He was born on this earth. He died on the cross and was resurrected. But in his divinity, there's no beginning or ending. And in Hebrews 7, speaking of Melchizedek, we don't have any record in Scripture of where he came from or where he went. And the reason why that is in Scripture, the Apostle Paul is telling us in Hebrews, is because he's like the Son of God. There's no beginning of days nor end of life because he's like the Son of God. No beginning, no ending. Only divinity divinity has no beginning or ending, and that's the divine nature of Christ. Now, John 8, 58 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am denotes an eternal existence. And then Hebrews 13, 8, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. You're going to see these verses show up again in a few minutes. Also in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we see, and we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, that's an important verse because the one true God movement says that the Father is the one true God based on John 17, 3. But here we see that 1 John 5, 20 says that the Son, Jesus Christ, is the true God. So, yes, the Father is the true God, and so is Jesus. And then they say, oh, well, Jesus is Lord, but he's not God. But notice what Jeremiah 10 says about the Lord. But the Lord is the true God. This is Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. So you put yourself in the box and say, oh, the Father is the one true God and Jesus Christ is Lord. But then the Bible says that the Lord is the true God. So there's lots of ways to show from the Bible that Jesus is Lord and is God. So Jesus Christ is Lord and the true God as well. So the Bible makes it very clear. This isn't a difficult concept. Isaiah 9, 6, showing us some titles of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So here we see that Jesus, who was born on this earth, is the Mighty God, and he's also called the Everlasting Father. John 3.16, he is called the Only Begotten Son. Now, some debate this um, and the meaning of this, but begotten in the Greek is the word monogenes. Mono means unique only or one genes is a category or a kind like genus or species. So Jesus is a one of a kind. Now they'll say, oh, but it says that Isaac was the only begotten son of Abraham and he had other sons after that. Well, you know, Isaac was the only son that Abraham had where both the father and the mother were both past childbearing age. Ishmael was born of Hagar who could who could bear children. And the sons that Abraham had after that were from women who could bear children. But Isaac was a one of a kind. And Jesus is a one of a kind. And just keep that in mind. Now, 
what does Ellen White say about Jesus? We've said a few things just to establish the truth of this issue, that he's the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God, um, that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the Father. Let's just look at a few other statements that Ellen White makes. This is from Manuscript Releases, volume 12, page 395. The yoke of obligation was not laid upon him to undertake the work of redemption. Voluntarily, he offered himself a willing, spotless sacrifice. He was equal with God, infinite and omnipotent. He was above all finite requirements. He was himself the law in character of the highest angels. It could not be said that they had never borne a yoke. So here you see that he was equal with God. And you listen to anti-Trinitarians, you see the video that I played earlier. They're showing that they don't believe he really is equal. Next paragraph. No one of the angels could become a substitute and surety for the human race, for their life as God's. They could not surrender it. On Christ alone, the human family depended for their existence. He is the eternal, self-existent Son on whom no yoke had come. So here's a definition for eternal. It means he's self-existent. He always has been. He did not rely on the Father to become existent. If you say that Jesus came from the substance of the Father, he cannot be self-existent. So again, very clear. Now, keep, keep on going in the statement. It says, when God asks, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Christ alone of the angelic host could reply, here am I, send me. He alone had covenanted before the foundation of the world to become a surety for man. He could say that which not the highest angel could say. I have power over my own life. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So Jesus is saying, because I am God, I have power to lay down my life and power to raise it up again. Only God can do that. Going on. Desire of Ages 469. With solemn dignity, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one, he who had been promised to Israel, whose goings forth had been from of old, from the days of eternity. And then she says in February 18, 1895, from letter 119, I am means an eternal presence. So please don't tell me that Jesus had a beginning in the days of eternity past. He's self-existent. He always has been. And the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said, before Abraham was, I am. There is no doubting the divine nature of Christ, that he is God, that he's self-existent, and that he always has been. And again... She uses in Desire of Ages 4.69, Micah 5.2, to explain what it means for his goings forth to have been from old, from the days of eternity. That means that he's the self-existent one. It's from the days of eternity. Now, another statement. This is 7 B.C. 955. These are wonderfully solemn and significant statements. It was the source of all mercy and pardon, peace and grace the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable one who visited his exiled servant on the isle that is called Patmos. So again, I mean, there's other statements 
so many statements, but this is making it very clear that Christ always has been. Now, this is, this is to me, the, the clencher statement from Ellen White about Christ. This is Medical Ministry, page 92. God always has been. Now, everybody agrees with that. But notice who she applies this statement to as we keep reading. He is the great I am. The, the psalmist declares, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I am the Lord, I change not, he declares. With him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, notice this phrase right here. She's still talking about God. She hasn't changed subjects. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. What Bible verse is that? That's Hebrews 13.8 describing Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is infinite and omnipresent. No words of ours can describe his greatness and majesty. So God always has been. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great I Am. So for all the hundred passages they may try to throw at you and the hundred Bible verses they'll throw your way, none of those passages can overcome what all, the statements that I've just shown you. That Christ is self-existent, that he always has been, that he is God. And the Bible says that he is God. The Father tells the Son that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, this is another statement that they don't like and they try to have an explanation for, but it's very clear. Desire of Ages, page 530. In Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived. He that hath the Son hath life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. So you're trying to take away Jesus from me as someone that I should worship. I'm not giving that up. Because that's my assurance of eternal life. And notice this, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. There's a reason why Ellen White wrote this statement in 1898. She was clarifying some of the, the divergent views that existed in the Seventh-day Adventist Church up until that point. It is true that there were anti-Trinitarians, semi-Arians, and so forth in the church. And in 1898, which was 17 years after her husband passed away, the Lord saw fit for her to write in her, her book, Desire of Ages, which is her clearest exposition on the divinity and the humanity of Christ. In addition to the, the supreme devotional value and inspiring and inspired value that you get from that book, just on what it means to be Christ-like, but from a theological standpoint, if you want to understand the, the divinity and humanity of Christ, theologically, the desire of ages is her primary source to understand that. And in Desire of Ages, describing the, divi the divinity of Christ, she says, in Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived. Now, the anti-Trinitarians say, yeah, the reason why his life is original is because it came out of the substance of the Father. So that's the original that was in the Father. And so it's not borrowed because it came out of the Father, and, it's, I, and I'm starting to not be able to explain it for them at this point, because it says it's underived. If he came out of the substance of the Father, by definition, that's derived. Eve was derived from the substance of Adam. 
Her, he, she came out of a rib from Adam. So she was derived from the substance of Adam. That does not make her less than Adam. She was his equal. She came out of his side, not so that he could rule over her or she would rule over him, but she would be won by his side. She was derived from Adam. Christ, in Christ, is life original, unborrowed, underived. Please don't tell me that he came out of the substance of the Father. Based on that statement alone, that makes it crystal clear. Um, now, while some, and I think I've said this, some Arians will argue that this is the life of the Father that is in Christ, that is original, unborrowed, and underived, but it is obvious that Ellen White did not mean that. She would have clarified that. She would have said, in the days of eternity past, he proceeded out of the substance of the Father, the way E.J. Wagner said it. But she didn't say it the way E.J. Wagner said it. No, she said, in Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived. She makes no qualifiers in the statement. She was not sending a subliminal message in which the true meaning would be discovered later. The plain reading of the statement is obvious. And she also says he is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. Now, some of you may or may not have heard of the story of M. L. Andreessen. He was a prominent Adventist author in the early 1900s, all the way into the 1950s. And he was converted in his early teen years and became a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And he had high devotion for Ellen White, and he was a semi-Aryan. He believed the way Wagner presented it and the way anti-Trinitarians say now that in the days of eternity past, Christ proceeded from the substance of the Father. But he became converted after reading her writings. Notice this interesting story. This is from an article written by Jerry Moon. It's from the Adventist Trinity Debate Part 1. It's, um, it can be found, you know, the, the reference will be on the next screen. Ellen White's assertions of Christ's eternal self-existence came as a shock to the theological leadership of the, of the church. Emil Andreessen, who had become an Adventist just four years earlier at the age of 18, and who would eventually teach at the church's North American Seminary, said that the new concept was so different from the previous understanding that some prominent leaders doubted whether Ellen White had really written it. And they're referring, well, and you'll see it in the next screen. After Andreasen entered the ministry in 1902, he made a special trip to Ellen White's California home to investigate the issue for himself. She welcomed him and gave him access to her manuscripts. Now, he brought with him a number of quotations that, quote, he wanted to see if they were in the original in her own handwriting. Now, notice what he says here. I was sure Sister White had never written, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. But now I found it in her own handwriting, just as it had been published. It was so with other statements. As I checked up, I found they were Sister Wright's own expressions. Now, M. L. Andreessen was a semiarian. He believed that Christ had a beginning in eternity past. And he thought that her writings had been tampered with. Have you ever heard of that assertion in recent times? 
Andreasen thought that surely it must have been the wide estate that changed the words around, and she never would have said that in Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived, and that he is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. And then he meets her in person, and he sees in her own handwriting the very written statements, and then she affirms, yes, that's what I wrote. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. You know, it's amazing to me. And, and now I'll say this. To his credit, Elder Andreasen accepted this new light and became a, a more accurate follower of the truth as it is in Jesus based on Scripture. He was living up to the light that he had, but when further light came to him, he came to understand that his understanding of the divine nature of Christ was incorrect, and he surrendered that understanding because the reality is that none of us are smart enough to figure it all out on our own. We need the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord has sent a prophet to our church and she's made it very clear. And they try to use her writings to, sit, to make it sound like she's teaching something other than what she actually says. Those are crystal clear statements, and there's no other statements that they can share that would, would override that. They're trying to twist her writings. Now, I want you to think about something. Lucifer and the anti-Trinitarians. Now, I'm, I'm sure this is not the intent of anti-Trinitarians, but this is what they're actually doing. Lucifer challenged Christ's authority in heaven. Anti-Trinitarians do not believe that Christ is God and have diminished him to a lesser role than the Father. He's the Son of God and a divine being, but not God. Satan was saying, how come Christ is worshipped the way the Father is and I can't be worshipped? I should be in the same position as Christ. And you know, if you read Story of Redemption and Great Controversy in those books, the Father had to call a council, a general assembly of all the angels, where he explained to all of the angels, hey, Christ is God and you should worship him. He's the chief of the angels. But he assumed the form of the angels. He was the archangel. And so Lucifer said, why is he better than me? Well, because Christ is humble. Philippians 2 makes that so clear. And so Satan would love nothing more than to deceive so-called Seventh-day Adventists into believing that Christ really isn't God and that worshiping him is idolatry. Friends, that's blasphemy. To say that worshiping Christ as God is blasphemy. Friends, I'm going to tell you right now, I worship Christ every day as God. And I will this day until the day he comes and throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. And nothing's going to change that. And if you want to call that idolatry, then may the Lord have mercy on you because that's blasphemous. Jesus is God and he is to be worshipped. And I want to read Philippians 2, which makes this so clear. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, it wasn't robbery for him to be equal with God because he was God. But it made himself of no reputation. And see, here's the thing. Christ was willing to make himself of no reputation. Other translations say he emptied himself, meaning he emptied himself of divinity when he came to this earth. 
or he made himself of no reputation, meaning that some would misunderstand who he really is. He did so at that risk so that he could save us, so we could understand who God really is. Made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now, friends, the only thing you can worship is God. That's not idolatry. And a day is coming when every knee will bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Jeremiah 10.10 says that the Lord is the true God. So when it says Jesus Christ is Lord, that means He is God. To the glory of God the Father. Friends, a day is coming that all the world is going to bow down and this is at the end of the thousand years, at the end of the, after the second resurrection. And friends, I want to be part of the first resurrection if Jesus should tarry. I pray that I'm alive when he comes. But I want to be part of that first resurrection experience because if I'm alive, I'm going to see those bodies come out of the grave. And I want to be among those that say of Jesus when he comes, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. I'm not saying this is the Son of God. Scripture says this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord, and he's my God. Thomas, when he saw Jesus, and Jesus has put your hands into my side, he said, my Lord and my God. I can't believe that this is so hard to understand. It shouldn't be. It is alarming that there are some Seventh-day Adventists who do not believe that Jesus is God and that he has not existed through all eternity. You know, it's one thing, and I'm going to talk more about the pioneers tomorrow in my presentation on the Holy Spirit and why there was this um, belief in some of these things. And the reason is, is that a large, or a decent, I don't know, a, a substantial part of the Millerite, Millerite movement came from the Christian connection who believed this way. Ellen White was not part of Christian connection, but James White and Joseph Bates were. So some of them, and Uriah Smith, so some of them had that viewpoint. Ellen White didn't, but eventually she spoke the truth on that matter. But here's the thing, the pioneers who believed that way didn't make it a testing truth. They didn't bring it to the forefront because they were united in proclaiming the soon coming of Jesus. Anti-Trinitarians now are trying to make it say that this is the one thing the church should be talking about. Their views require twisting the plain reading of inspiration in order to accept their presuppositions. To claim that we must accept their views in order to receive the latter rain and the seal of God is heresy and a deception. Now, remember what I read from Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, that the works of the flesh which are manifest are these, and it starts off with adultery, fornication, licentiousness, and so forth. But heresy is one of the manifestations of the work of the flesh. And in that is also, it descri describes wrath, strife, and so forth. Heresy, listen to this, when heresy comes knocking on the door of your church, strife follows. And that is an evidence of the work of the flesh. 
and there is a lack of respect for the leadership of the church, and people will say, well, I'm going to teach this no matter who, who says what to me because I only answer to God, not to you. But listen, friends, and I'm going to talk about this in our fourth in the six-part series about the role of church authority. God has delegated authority on this earth. And if you don't respect the head elder and the pastor of your church who are the delegated authority for that local church body that Christ has set up on this earth, then you are not really willing to submit to Christ himself. And it is true that authority can be abused, but that's why Christ says, wipe the dust off your feet and move on to the next town if they won't receive you in one city. But some of these people say, no, we're going to just rough it out and we're going to agitate, agitate, agitate until everyone agrees with us. And that's why, and I'll say this as I wrap up. It's one thing if there's a person in your church who's a member of your church who quietly believes this and they don't agitate this, and they're not trying to make disciples into this belief. They quietly believe this. It's unfortunate if they do, but they're sitting there quietly and not doing anything to agitate it. That's one thing. You may not even know that they believe it. They're just sitting there quietly. They never say anything about it. So I'm not here to suggest that you go on some kind of an inquisition to find out if people believe this. But here's what you do need to be aware of in your church. If even one person is agitating this issue, okay, if you talk to them and they say, okay, fine, we'll stop agitating, and they really stop agitating it, okay, end of discussion. But if you talk to them as the leadership of your, you're the leadership of the church and you talk to them and they continue to agitate it, that is grounds for church discipline and removal for membership. Because your church should not be split and divided over the works of the flesh. This is heresy. We are getting ready for Jesus to come, and the last thing we need is to allow Satan to come into our churches with a false teaching about who Christ and the Holy Spirit are. We have more important things to be focusing on, and this is a distraction and a deception that is going to keep people from being ready for Jesus to come. So I leave you with that thought. Again, here's a um, a reference for a really good resource if you want something on the Trinity And then the last thing I'll mention, if you want further study on the book of Daniel, I have a book coming out in the next few weeks from Remnant Publication. Um, It's a verse-by-verse commentary. It goes through all of the book of Daniel. It even addresses the interesting chapter of Daniel 11. I go through the whole thing, and it looks at the big picture. It makes practical applications, so I think you'll enjoy that book. This time I'm going to offer a closing prayer, and we will wrap up the session, but I want to thank you for coming out today, and I encourage you to come back tomorrow where we address the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. So let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us today. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, who is the Son of God, is also God, and that we can worship Christ, that we can worship the Father, that there is a unity of three co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive us for times that we may have been confused on this issue. I pray that you would protect our churches and our people from this deception, and may we be found faithful when Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.